Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. There was uh, We have another Trisha Cotham. I mentioned this woman yesterday. She's out of Georgia. Her name is Misha Maynard, and um, she is a uh, Democratic representative in the State General Assembly down there out of the Atlanta area, Midtown uh, District, and uh, she went on to the Twitter machine yesterday and said, my name is Representative Misha Maynard, and today I made the decision to leave the Democrat Party. Note, she calls it the Democrat Party, not the Democratic Party. She says, I represent a blue district in the city of Atlanta, so this was not a political decision for me. It was a moral one. I will never apologize for being a black woman with a mind of my own. When I opposed efforts to defund the police, many of my colleagues called me a sellout. I laughed at them. The only group I have ever sold out to is my constituents who deserve to live in safe communities, not war zones. I didn't remember Atlanta is ground zero for uh, was a cop city that developed or the project where they want to take like a whole bunch of uh, land and turn it into a training facility for law enforcement and firefighters. And you got all these Antifa moon bats that have, uh, you know, uh, taken to uh, tree houses on the property and uh, they, they engage in, you know, running violence and battles with local law enforcement to clear them out and all that. And most of the people that are, you know, at this uh, cop city protest, uh, like they're white folks. <laughs> <laughs> you can't help but notice there's a whole bunch of white folks, these uh, uh, white leftists, usually from pretty well-to-do backgrounds. Uh, there's one uh, child of a of a prominent charlatan here, big mover and shaker in the Charlotte area for like 20 plus years. Michael Marsicano's son is one of those people that got popped down there. And what they want to do is to stop the training facility from being built so you don't get what trained police officers. And I guess that does make some bit of sense because if you have highly trained law enforcement officers, theoretically you would have fewer of the mistakes that are made that generate all of the let's burn down the city riots, you know? So if you have fewer trained officers, you have more of the incidents and that means more city burning. And that usually disproportionately affects minority communities. She says, I did not leave the Democrat party. The Democrat party left me when it embraced left-wing radicalism, lawlessness, and put the interests of illegal aliens over the interest of Americans. I have nothing to apologize for. She then went on Fox News and told Sean Hannity the following last night. The two things that I have actually run on in my district in Atlanta is education and public safety. Um, It doesn't matter what part of my district that people are in, parents are asking for choices. Right now, there are schools that only 3% of children can are meeting proficiency. That's not acceptable. The option that the Democrats are giving is keep them there until we fix it. We'll get it better soon. But it's been like that for 50 years. That's not acceptable. I didn't vote for it. The other thing, to your point, public safety. Um, 
the Democrats wanted to defund the police. Um, I was on Twitter with one of my former colleagues the other day, and she said, I never voted not to defund the police. And um, some constituents brought up her vote and said, this is the vote that you did. So we need to yeah. make some changes, and I'm happy to do so. All right. So her support of school vouchers was sort of, well, one of the final straws that broke the camel's back, along with her support of law enforcement and and, and uh, disciplining prosecutors. She becomes the only black member of the GOP among Georgia's 236 state lawmakers and the first black Republican woman to ever serve in the Georgia General Assembly. Her defection gives Republicans a 102 to 78 edge in the House. Maynard said legislative Democrats drove her out of the party. Tell me if this sounds familiar. For breaking party orthodoxy, claiming at a news conference at the Capitol that they had, quote, relentlessly tried to sabotage every single thing that I have done for District 56 and publicly slandered me in every way imaginable. I thought it was okay to not agree with those things as a Democrat, but they told me, quote, you know what? Those are values we just don't have. So this is this is a fall in line mentality. This is you have to vote for every single thing, particularly on the education front. And she makes a very good point that their solution is keep these kids in failing schools until we fix it. And she rightfully points out, correctly points out that it hasn't been fixed in half a century. There is a. There is a concept to keep in mind here, right? When you have in our system, we have two major political parties, right? And so each of those parties have different groups and they form this coalition that is then represented at the party level. A good example of this is uh, the Reagan coalition, which fractured after the fall of communism in the Soviet Union. You had... Uh, the, the three-legged stool, right? You had, uh, on the one hand, you had the uh, the war hawks, right? And you had the uh, the libertarians, civil libertarian uh, strain. And then you had the religious right. And the thing that connected them all together was what? Anti-communism. They were all about, you know, kicking red commie butt. They all they were all down with that. They all saw it as an existential threat to the American way of life and the American project. Well, when the Soviet Union collapses, now these three groups have lost sort of the glue that keeps them together. Right. These these fiscal uh, fiscal restraint folks are now kind of running uh, the libertarian limited government folks. They're kind of running up against the war hawks. Right. Um, and the religious folks as well, the religious folks, they run up against the, the war hawks as well, because on, a, on other matters like, hey, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be, uh, you know, invading all these other countries. So you have you have the fracturing of the coalition over time. That's why I, I keep saying this. We are watching a realignment of the political parties. And I think if the Republicans are able to successfully position themselves as the party of parents I think that's the pathway for success. Glenn Youngkin showed that to us. I think Ron DeSantis showed it to us at the uh, at the gubernatorial level. That if you can brand yourself as the party of parental rights and parents, you have a much bigger pool or a much bigger 
lake, to, uh, you know, from which to fish. Because everybody has parents. Most people become parents. And uh, most people know parents, right? It, it, it's, it's a unifying thing. And if you can I, I get people to identify as parents and say, ah, this party offers parent-centric, parent-friendly policies, all of a sudden you have way more people that could be attracted to that message. But what do I know? I'm just a little old radio host. But then again, we are about solving the world's problems. But I would note, so, so in these coalitions that form around, or, or underneath, I should say, the party banner, when one particular demographic inside or, or member, coal, member of the coalition, when they feel like they are not having their issues manifested by, at the party level, when they're, not, when they're not getting any kind of return on the investment of their time and, and political donations and such, they will then start looking for, uh, for help with the other party. And if the other party is smart, they will see what's happening across the aisle and they will go over and say, hey, look, why don't you come over here? We like that policy. We're for that policy. And they could try to capture fragments of the larger coalition. And so to the extent that you have Democrats that see, as she said, her top two priorities are education and public safety. Well, those are areas that the Democrats have have just surrendered. The public safety thing during the the George Floyd uh, riots and such, they just abandoned that with the defund the police stuff. They just they, they, they took uh, an antagonistic view towards law enforcement. And they're trying to repair that now because it's been so demonstrably bad. But on the education front, they are seen, the Democrats are seen as captured by the teachers union and maybe not looking out for the best interests of the kids and the parents, but rather for the system and, and the adults that work in that system. And this has been a long time coming. This is 20 years in the making. Let's get Ralph on the program. Hello, Ralph. How are you? Hey, Pete. You hey. know, and I can't, this is a theory I have, and I'm sure the Democratic Party and the teachers unions have had these conversations behind closed doors, but I honestly think they're in conjunction with each other. I know for power, but if they can keep these kids underperforming, they'll have a continuing, a continuing voting base for eternity, eternity because, I mean, like when LBJ uh, started welfare and stuff like that, he said, we'll have a whole class of people that will always vote for us. I, I don't know if it is that explicit. Uh, maybe it is behind closed doors in, in the smoke-filled back rooms, or I guess the vape-filled back rooms nowadays. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I try not to ascribe motive like that. I think it is, it is more, I think the obvious, uh, uh, the obvious explanation in regards to the, the teachers union is that they represent a lot of money and a lot of voter base. And so the policies that the union endorses, um, carries a lot of purchase inside the democratic party because the party is afraid of losing those that those donations and those votes so i i don't know if um i don't you know they because the teachers union positions themselves as the pro-education crowd and that's and that has worked for them for a very long time but i think COVID exposed a lot of that for the fallacy it is it's uh, you know the union is for the educators it's not for education right it's it's for the employees it's an employees union and so they are looking out for their members uh, first and foremost, and uh, I think a lot of people kind of came to that uh, awakening during COVID. Well, and another point, too, 
I mean, why give people social promotions or either participation awards if you can't read uh, proficiently and do math? You, that is the detriment of society. I mean, that is what lead is what they're wanting to lead to socialism, in my opinion. So the, I will. So their argument, I will tell you, is that uh, for the social promotion argument, is that if you if you keep holding kids back, the, the they keep falling further and further behind. They never have an opportunity to catch up. I, I would submit that they, that doesn't happen either when you promote them, but. Um, but then you end up with older kids in a population in a school classroom setting, right? They're now older. In, in some cases, they may be two or three years older, and so developmentally, they're at a different place than their peers. Um, and also, then they can drop out, and everybody gets you know freaked out about the dropout rate, the graduation rates, and stuff. And so, it is a way to artificially pad the graduation rates. Which, you know, if they're too low, people then complain that the kids aren't getting an education either. And, and look, and, and to this to this point, I am sympathetic to the teachers uh, and the, and school officials who say, like, they're trying to they're trying to uh, handle these kids that are coming into the classrooms out of all of these problems at home and in their neighborhoods and stuff. And the schools, these teachers, they cannot fix all of these things that are outside of their walls. Right. Um but I think the problem, this is why I keep coming back to it, the problem is the model. The problem is the K-12 model. And they cannot fix those things because the model was not intended to do so. Well, and I would say, like, if you didn't pass, you know, uh, your, your your grade and go to the next grade and everything, and then if, I, I would give them one year, and then and then they need to have a a special, and this always is going to boil down to money. But uh, you know, send them to a special school. You know, give give them what they need. They're not getting what they need at home. You're correct, but it it's a complicated scenario. But mm-hmm. you know, it, it has to be fixed, or it's going to be the downfall of uh, certain classes of people, which it already is. Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like you're you're seeing the wreckage uh, in in multiple generations of of people who are marginalized now in perpetuity because they have been because they have not been able to take advantage of for whatever reasons the educational opportunities that were provided to them and yeah it 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 harms uh entire blocks of people but it also harms the the country the society the cities the counties it's 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 a real problem and you know this is a cultural mindset this isn't Brookings Institute talked about this when they with their ideas about how to stay out of poverty and what they you know found was there are three basic things that you do and if you do these three things chances are you're not going to be in poverty or you'll get out of it and those are three things that government really cannot get you to do you know have a job any job um, finish high school you know get your high school uh, uh, diploma and then uh, don't have any kids before you get married which should happen after you graduate. So if you do those three things, the chances are like in the single digit percentage uh, range that you're going to ever be in poverty. But, but for some reason we don't want to convey these messages because I think it, it goes down to what um, Dennis Prager uh, talked about. And I ran the clip yesterday where he talked about that a lot of liberals, not leftists, but liberals, uh, they don't want to acknowledge or admit that they are closer to the conservatives on a lot of this stuff than they are 
to the leftists. So they end up voting with voting for and with leftists, even though they tend to live their lives and believe in things that are closer to conservative views than leftist views. That's I think that's a that's a really big problem. Ralph, I appreciate the call, buddy. Thanks so much. All right. Oh, he already knew. He was already gone. There is a component to the K-12 education model that is built up around, um, for lack of a better term, a factory model, right? That's what it, that's what it was sort of designed to do is get a lot of people that were coming in off of the farms, getting them, you know, not, not to create, quote, men of letters, as it was called back when they uh, created the system, but it was to get them out of the fields, off the farms, into the uh, factories and have them be able to read just enough and do a little bit of math, a little bit of sapphirin, in order to, you know, not lose a bunch of limbs in the machines and to keep the factories going. And, I mean, you think about it, the K-12 model is itself a factory model and that, you know, everybody has this sort of born-on date, right? When you first get onto the assembly line, oh, well, they're five years old. Or I guess now, what, if Democrats have their way, it'd be like three years old, right? But you go into kindergarten by your age. Well, Why? Some kids are more advanced than that. They shouldn't be in that, in that class. And some kids are not mature enough to be in that class. But we just say, well, you're all the same age, so in you go. And, of course, like I'm old enough to remember when they were tracking kids, not like spyware tracking, but uh, putting the kids in first track, second track, third track. And second track was where, it's, if you think of it like a bell curve, second track would be where most of the kids are academically, developmentally, in the, in the big, fat part of the bell, right? That's second track. That's sort of your, quote, normal track. And then you've got first track for kids that are excelling. I guess now it's AP, advanced placement or something. And, and then you have, or, do they call them gifted and talented anymore? They're not allowed to call them that. I forget what they call them that now. I remember I was in a program in, may have been fifth and sixth grade, and they changed I think it was fourth, fifth, sixth grade. They changed it to uh, the Explorers <laughs> because you couldn't call it gifted and talented. And and then there was the the younger, or sorry, the the kids on the other side, not uh, by age, but on the other side, academically and performance wise, on the other side of the bell curve, and that, that was third track. But you can't do that. Then they stopped doing that because it's like, well, you're locking them into these tracks; they can never get out of them. And I understand that as well. But this is one of the limitations of creating this factory model is that you're not treating kids as the individuals they are, right? You're, you're treating them as a product, as a batch. Born on this day, move them through. Oh, they have this performance, so they get herded over there. They have this kind of performance, they get herded over there. So this Democrat out of Georgia, Misha Maynard, she's a proponent of finding a better way to educate kids. And so she's on board with school choice. She's long been on the outs for that position, but also she had a stalker. It was one of her campaign workers or something, and this person stalked her, and she was not able to utilize the criminal justice system in order to get protection. And so she's got different ideas about, about that system as well and how it works for victims. She became the only Democrat to vote for a school voucher bill, according to the Associated Press, it did fail, by the way. That school voucher bill failed because a bunch of Republicans broke ranks and opposed it. State Senator, after that vote, State Senator Josh McLaurin, an Atlanta Democrat, 
posted a picture of a $1,000 check online asking for a primary challenger against her, saying, quote, all I need is a name. Does that sound familiar? That's what Roy Cooper has been doing, right? Promising, not, I mean, not with the social media post, but yeah, promising to primary people that aren't sufficiently loyal to his agenda. Democrats attacking Trisha Cotham, trying to find primary challengers against her because of her view on, I mean, on like one or two of these issues where she disagrees with the party platform. Maynard urged other lifelong Democrats to re-examine the party's values. She said, quote, I am encouraging more black Americans and black Democrats in particular. You might have this coat on, but I suggest you look at the lining. See what's on the inside. GOP chair Jeff McCoon welcomed Maynard, saying her move shows that the GOP is where diversity of opinion is welcome. (laughs) Look, all right. He's going to take advantage of the situation, okay? Just like Republicans in North Carolina are like, oh, we love Trisha Cotham while censuring Tom Tillis, right, for having a different opinion about something else. But, you know, right now, the PR dictates that we are the party where different ideas uh, live. We, we talk about different policy ideas and solutions, and this is considered a strength, not a weakness. Do you think that's true in the Republican Party? I have not been a Republican in 25 years or so. I don't believe that's true. I believe that the Republican Party has way more internal disagreements, no doubt about it. But I don't think it's necessarily welcome. If you doubt me, you know, go to one of your local Republican meetings and say something bad about Donald Trump or say something bad about Ron DeSantis and see what happens, right? I don't think that's necessarily welcome. I think you get called all sorts of names, whether it's a, a, a disimp or whatever or a Trump humper or something like you get called all sorts of names, rhino this and whatever. But right now, PR dictates like McCoon says, we can disagree, but still come together on things that matter the most to us. Yeah. Okay. By the way, she is not the first legislative Democrat in Georgia to switch parties. The last time it happened was uh, way back in 2021. A fellow by the name of Vernon Jones switched to the Republican Party. Uh, he plunged into the GOP in uh, January of 21 as a supporter of Donald Trump. At the end of his last term in the state house, he then abandoned a Republican primary challenge to Governor Brian Kemp at Trump's behest. Trump asked him not to run against Kemp, and then he ran in a congressional primary and lost that to U.S. Representative Mike Collins, despite having Donald Trump's backing on that. She says... Uh, When I decided to stand up on behalf of disadvantaged children in support of school choice, my Democrat colleagues did not stand by me. They crucified me. When I decided to stand up in support of safe communities and refused to support efforts to defund the police, they did not back me. They abandoned me. She says, for too long, if you've been listening to my show for any period of time, this is going to sound really, really familiar. She says, for far too long, the Democrat Party has gotten away with using and abusing the black community For decades, the Democrat Party has received the support of more than 90% of the black community. And what do we have to show for it? 
I represent a solidly blue district in the city of Atlanta. This isn't a political decision for me. It's a moral one. So when I talk about the coalitions, when they feel like they're not being represented by the party that they have hooked their wagon to, they're going to start looking at the other party and saying, will you get me what I want? Will I be more successful in your party? And that's what these school choice Democrats are seeing. The pro-choice Democrats noticed this a long time ago, and they started moving years ago. Oh, and before I forget, have you got your ticket to the Heritage Life Skills event yet? I'll be there. The annual event is put on by Carolina Readiness Supply, and you can learn all sorts of ways to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables. I'll be there Saturday evening. Check out the schedule at carolinareadiness.com. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness can help you. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? All right, this is from Fox News, I believe. Yes, Fox News. Um... Talking about Misha Maynard, the Georgia Democrat who jumped parties, pulled a Trisha Cotham, and uh, it was over the same issues, basically. The main issue she cited was school choice. And she said that she has been met with much encouragement amid her decision to switch parties to be a Republican and noted that it's, quote, humbling to be embraced for the first time in a long time by individuals who don't find fault in a black woman having a mind of her own and be willing to buck the party line. Asked whether she believes she will face pushback from Democrats over her decision, Maynard said, quote, the most dangerous thing to the Democrat Party is a black person with a mind of their own, so it wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) Um, She says she'll continue to focus on education, but also she wants to help grow the Republican Party. Quote, helping us focus not just on preaching to the choir, but growing the congregation. She said, I support school choice parents' rights and opportunities for children to thrive, especially those that are marginalized and tend to fail in school. The Democrats at the Georgia State Capitol took a hard position and demanded every Democrat vote against children and for the teachers' union. I voted yes for parents and yes for children not failing schools. Brookings Institution. Hardly a right-wing think tank. It's actually a, a liberal think tank. In a piece uh, published today by Allegra Pochinki called How Progressive is School Funding in the United States? Policymakers, advocates, and the public have long been concerned with inequities in funding levels between schools attended by students from low-income families and their more affluent peers. School funding systems vary by state, but in the typical state, The financing of K-12 education is shared roughly equally by the state and local governments. In North Carolina, by the way, it's a little bit more towards the state than the locals. Um, That's just the way it's set up here. The state funds the operations, basically, and the locals fund the capital. But now the state has started funding capital as well, particularly for the uh, poorer counties. The federal government covers less than 10% of the cost. Most states have provisions designed to target additional funding to districts attended by low-income students with the goal of making up for these districts' limited capacity to raise revenue through property taxes and other local sources. 
as I just mentioned, North Carolina has done that. Uh, Pachinki, along with her Urban Institute colleagues, developed a new measure of funding, progressivity, the uh, the progressiveness of the funding. Okay? So, in other words, like, the, the poorer school is, the more money it should get, right? And they compared the, the trend line from 1994 through 2014, which is the, the most recent year they've got data available, which I don't know why it's on such a 10-year leg. But nationwide, get this, per student, K-12 education funding from all sources, local, state, federal, per student funding is similar at the districts attended by poor students and non-poor students. In fact, it's higher for the poor students. A 2.5% difference in favor of poor schools. And that difference has not changed since 1994. It has been a persistent overfunding, uh, not overfunding, but uh, more money going towards poor districts, than rich ones. Fewer than 10% of non-poor students were enrolled in low-spending districts every single year. So rich kids or middle-class kids, only 10% going to low-spending districts. The share of low-income students um, attending poorly funded districts has not changed over the past 20 years. She examines the distribution of state and local funding over time and relative funding provided to the districts attended by poor versus rich students by state and local governments also hasn't changed much. State funding levels are about 10 points higher for poor students. Local funding is about 15% lower for poor students. So the state, at the state level, the states are doing a better job of pushing more resources to the poorer schools. And they point out that the interpretation of these results will vary based on the reader's expectations. If you think that there were like all these vast inequalities, there, there isn't. But if you think, well, we need to put more money towards the poor schools, then you're not going to be satisfied with it either. Thank you.